It is Wednesday, February 14th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Keller. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, an old dam is being renovated to be a new aquatic nature preserve. So the vision for developing the recreational aspects of this park once the dam is removed primarily focuses on getting our community to be able to access the river safely. Plus, progress on a black historic district in Fayetteville. We now are calling on you citizens, residents, homeowners in um, the Spouse Spring historic, potential historic district, and we needed to let them vent and tell us what they thought, raise any concerns or questions. And what we realized is we were sitting in a room full of people who have never been given the opportunity to dream or even imagine or hope this large. And what can happen at the University of Wonder and Imagination? Everything and anything. I think that's the whole point of the University of Wonder and Imagination. All that after the news from NPR. This is Ozarks at Large for Valentine's Day 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. We start our day today with a trip on the water. Plans are underway to enhance Combs Sports Field in South Fayetteville, situated along the West Fork of the White River. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the 135-year-old Pump Station Waterworks Dam will be removed to make way for a public aquatic nature preserve. Nearly 50 residents turned out for a drop-in open house late last month at Fayetteville Public Library to learn and comment on planned enhancements to Combs Park ball fields. City officials aim to create the city's first true river access along the West Fork of the White River. Ted Jack is the city's park planning superintendent. West Fork White River is great. I mean, it's just a really cool place, but getting there can be difficult. For decades, visitors could view the West Fork flowing through Pump Station Dam on this site, a late 19th century drinking waterworks that was closed in the 1960s. The native stone pump house and caretaker's cottage will be restored. Direct river access for wading, floating, and fishing will also be added. So this will make a really uh, easy-to-get-to site. I think it'll be a real neat destination that's different than anything we have and a great place for people to kind of, without leaving the city, have a, a great natural area. Located just four miles from Fayetteville's town square, the enhanced park will also feature hard surface trails to interconnect to the city's transportation trail system and regional blue way. Different places where you can put your uh, canoe or kayak in, and if you want to do a two-hour paddle, you could do that. If you want to do a four-hour, you could do that. If you want to do an eight-hour, you could probably do that. So just the, giving a lot of flexibility to users. But first, the ancient waterworks dam has to be removed. Matthew Epps, associate director of the nonprofit Watershed Conservation Resource Center headquartered in Fayetteville, stands on the edge of the dam, surging with recent rainwater and clogged with tons of forest debris. The, the dam itself has a uh, maximum height to the top of the structure of about eight feet. Typically, the uh, height of the water Upstream and downstream of the dam has about a uh, six-foot differential. Uh, the dam is about 100 feet wide. Epp says the center is working with the Arkansas Natural Resources Conservation Service to accomplish the complicated and controlled demolition of the perilous 135-year-old dam. He says when the design work is finished and funding approved, a specialist will be hired to slowly demolish the old concrete and stone dam. 
The most likely method of removing the dam would be to use a large hydraulic excavator with a hammer on the end of the arm and that, that hammer will slowly pound out the concrete that composes the dam. Sections of the historic stonework tied to the riverbank will be preserved. Demolition will be scheduled only during low flow episodes, likely summer months, with drawdown gates opened to first slowly drain the impounded water. As part of the design process, we looked at what kind of sediments were built up behind the dam, and we've come to find that most of the sediments that are in the backwater, uh, that is the, the flat water behind the dam, uh, are composed mostly of gravels and cobbles. And so there's not a lot of mobilized uh, silt potential uh, when we do remove the dam. So more than likely, there won't be any dredging. In fact, we may end up having to add gravel material to the channel upstream of the dam because historically this channel has been dredged to encourage uh, storage capacity. He says tearing down this dam will once again enable aquatic species migration. And this dam here on the West Fork of the White River is a fish passage barrier. Their passage through this dam once it's removed is going to allow ecosystems uh, to really increase their diversity and, and populations of aquatic species, terrestrial species, all, all of the ecosystem will benefit by removing this dam. After dam removal is complete, recreational river access construction will begin. To be able to access the river safely, and there will be a, a myriad of types of recre recreational activities. This public river access will be assessed and then monitored by the Arkansas Department of Health Swim Beach Program. The West Fork of the White River originates in the Boston Mountains and has a seasonal limited flow compared to high-volume whitewater streams like the Mulberry River. But in the springtime, it's going to be a really convenient place for somebody in Fayetteville, after they get done with work, to come down here, get on a kayak, have a float for an hour, and be able to return home to the house for dinner with the family. So uh, we're really looking forward to, to opening up this river. and. You know, we feel like when, when we're able to get the public onto rivers and streams, it increases their interest in conserving and protecting those assets for everybody else. According to American Rivers, more than 30,000 obsolete dams like this one are needlessly congesting our nation's waterways. Removal, the nonprofit claims, revitalizes streams. Sandy Formica, executive director and founder of the Watershed Conservation Resource Center, and her team have completed 33 river and wetland restoration projects on the Arkansas Ozarks since 2008, with seven more in the works, including this site. Currently, this dam is backing up water about a mile, and it's creating a lake environment in the middle of a river environment. We don't have the benefits of the river and the aeration through the riffles, um, that we have in a natural system. So when you look downstream of the dam, yes, there's a lot of scour, and that's because of the elevation difference between um, the height of the dam and the uh, base of the river. And what that does is it blows out the banks downstream. After the dam is removed, Formica's team will coordinate work to stabilize and improve several miles of stream bed and banks here, important terrestrial habitat referred to as riparian zones. The types of plant materials are based on the local ecoregion. So everything we select um, to install or to revegetate this site will be uh, plants that have been growing here 
for you know more than a thousand years and we actually collect seed from existing sites um, that have not been disturbed and and we do grow some plants from those seeds and we also grow them from bare roots. Once complete, this Combs Aquatic Nature Park will link with the 32-mile West Fork White River Regional Water Trail, which contains access points extending from Brentwood Community Park to State Highway 45 White River access to the north. The Water Trail is a collaborative led by the Watershed Conservation Resource Center and Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. The West Fork is one of three main forks that comprise the White River system, which flows north into Missouri and then south into East Arkansas. You know, this river has been neglected for decades. And we started this process back in 2015, um, suggesting to the city, maybe you guys want to restore this and make it part of the community again. And here we are today, we have a design at this point. We had the community supporting it, and of course the city supporting it. And um, so the next step is to finalize the design, finalize the application for the funding, and then to build it. Back at the public meeting, Dirk Thibodeau, a landscape architect with Half Associates in Bentonville, says he's under contract to design the Combs Park enhancement, pointing to a design placard behind him. So what we're looking at is having sidewalks that go through the park, connecting to future trail systems. We're looking at pavilions so you could picnic. We're looking at river access, um, ADA river access, so we're having getting everybody down into the river so you can play, kayak, tube, all those things that the river will allow us to do. Uh, and City of Fayetteville providing the amenities next to it, bathroom facilities, pavilions, uh, cookout places. Thibodeau will also install native plant shrubs and trees on the preserve. Washington County native David Balt says he treasures the West Fork and supports this project. I don't think many people know there's a blue heron rookery on this stretch of the river, on the Oxbow. Uh, and I'm glad I came today because just looking at it, I think a lot of people look at that backwater as a drainage and overflow and not part of like the ecosystem. Uh, so when we've been out on the water my whole life back there, we love going back there. Of course, we love to fish back there for sunfish and brim, but uh, to take in the natural life, I mean, we've seen, what, mink, otter, beaver, groundhog, deer, fox. The rookery is amazing if you can get there in the spring. Standing nearby, David's father, John Balt, says he's fished the West Fork of the White River for years. That is the most unique place White River has. Elkins resident Julie Holland says she greatly values the ever-expanding work of the Watershed Conservation Resource Center. I've been observing these uh, river restoration projects for a few years and I see that they're doing a fantastic job with this and it seems like this would be a good use of all that good work they're doing on the rivers. Even Fayetteville Mayor Lionel Jordan plans to enjoy the Combs Park River access once complete. I'm real thrilled about this project. This thing will go on long after I'm gone. It'll be something that we can leave all this tree preservation and green space and the, and the natural streams. You know what? We're going to leave that for our children and our children's children. That's what's important. Fayetteville planners are asking residents to take a look at the Combs Park Aquatic and Nature Enhancement Design and Planning Maps, which are posted online. Search Speak Up Fayetteville.
For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ahead on Ozarks, progress on the creation of a black historic district in Fayetteville. We now are calling on you, citizens, residents, homeowners in um, the Spouse Spring historic, potential historic district, and we needed to let them vent and tell us what they thought, raise any concerns or questions. And what we realized is we were sitting in a room full of people who have never been given the opportunity to dream or even imagine or hope this large. That's ahead on today's show. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Marshallese communities in northwest Arkansas continue to face challenges stemming from immigration policies and enforcement programs that are disproportionately targeting them. The state criminal alien assistance program known as SCAP has sounded alarms for local advocates that say the partnership puts communities more at risk for deportation. Data from the program shows that Marshallese communities are overrepresented, making up almost 60% of the names on the list that are then shared with ICE. Beth Coger, one of the justices of the peace on the Washington County Quorum Court, says that the grant incentivizes the jails to hold undocumented individuals and even people whom they suspect of being undocumented. We're getting 117000 this year. The jail maintenance and budget for, for 2022, just over $19 million. It comes out to 0.00617% of the total jail. That's, that's nothing. That's for SCAP. They call it reimbursement. I don't call it reimbursement. I call it a token payment on a large debt. $117,000 compared to $19.1 million. And, and then look at the harm it does because it breaks apart families. It causes fear. Just to know that it's there, I know the immigrant community it lives in fear. There are also concerns that Marshallese community members are being unfairly targeted despite their unique status. One of the requirements of SCAP is that you enter the country illegally. Marshall Police do not enter the country illegally. They come here with a passport, and, and they get a, when they get here, they get a visa. And we have the compact, you know, because of all the nuclear damage we did to the Marshall Islands, early 40s and 50s and all. The compact was recently renewed last October, which allows Marshall Islanders to enter the U.S. legally because of the nuclear legacy between the countries. Up until 1958, the U.S. nuclear testing program devastated the Marshall Islands with firepower equivalent to 7,000 Hiroshima bombs. Stephanie Takamaru from the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese says her office has been flooded with calls from families trying to find their loved ones. How am I supposed to get this inmate to reach out to the loved ones? They didn't know that they were picked up. There's no communication. They've been detained for, I've seen clients that have been detained for three months and they have not been able to reach loved ones. The language barrier adds another layer of complexity to an already daunting situation. Oh, there's a huge language barrier. I mean, I'm calling the ICE detentions and trying to locate these loved ones. You know, once I locate them, you know, I'm I'm sitting here going, how do I get this individual that is in your custody right now? I see them online. It, It verifies that they are there. How am I supposed to get that family member to reach out to loved ones to let them know if they're doing okay? Is there any stuff that they're needing while they're incarcerated? 
SCAP shares information of people who are undocumented, have committed one felony or two misdemeanors, and have been in detention for more than four days. SCAP also shares information like people's names, birth countries, home, and work addresses. Washington County Sheriff Jay Cantrell alleges that the program is just a grant and helps reimburse the jail's expensive operating budget. Operating the county jail in Washington County is the most expensive thing we do. It's about $25 million this year to operate the county jail. If we have a chance to, to uh, get recoup some of those costs, even you know, uh, 100000 $117,000 does not seem very much compared to $25 million. But if it's out there, it requires very little effort for us to get it and, and to get that. Then, then we buy detaining uniforms with it. We buy mattresses. The sheriff seems surprised at the high number of Marshallese people on the list, citing local police departments that feed into the jail. I find that interesting that there were that many Marshallese. I haven't looked at the right breakdown of the race on the ones we submitted. So, yeah, that... that Seems high, but you know I don't really know. Uh, I do know that uh, that the sheriff's office, the Washington County Sheriff's Office, and the Washington County Jail were probably not involved in very many of those arrests. Local leaders like J.P. Beth Coger are calling for open communication to address concerns about deportations and build stronger bonds of trust between undocumented communities and law enforcement. I have never argued that charges shouldn't be filed, that someone shouldn't be prosecuted if they break the law. I've never said that. But I will always say that everyone deserves the same treatment in our justice system. And if we're not making darn sure that happens, then we're not doing our job. Not only not doing our job, we're negligent. For Ozarks at Large... I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage is working with the city of Fayetteville to develop a black historic district in Fayetteville. The organization's director, Sharon Killian, and the project consultant, Emma Wilson, joined Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth to discuss the project and an event they're hosting tomorrow at Crystal Bridges. Hope beyond boundaries. Um, It stemmed from the fact that we were dealing with a number of marginalized property owners in a historically black community. And when we started this work, it was a very, very, very noble effort um, on Sharon's behalf um, and on behalf of Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage to attempt to preserve the history of the region. Um, Met with a few boundaries herself and barriers that prevented the work that she was doing ultimately to come to a standstill. And that was an opportunity for her to to take a really good look of what it was she wanted to accomplish overall and what the organization seeks to do. And we got to a point where I was brought in, we had a conversation, and I began the initial look at both her work and the community at large. And so um, Hope Beyond Boundaries just stems from those natural barriers and boundaries that we as black people here in America have historically confronted and have created these really huge and glaring gaps in terms of how um, our history has been preserved. Um, The cities, the states, the government's inability to offer us resources to preserve spaces or even teach us how to do it. And when you do this work, you get to look at how 
black people were considered when the Constitution was drafted. Subsequently, from the, the federal or the national Constitution, we get state constitutions. Those constitutions <laughs> still, yeah. uh, for all intents and purposes, do not recognize black people. Um, and again, another boundary that has been drawn to prevent, you know, just the preservation and the acknowledgement of our contributions to a country and a lot of times places or, or regions or um, localities. And so Hope Beyond Boundaries is really a testament to how far we've come in little less than um, six months. Um, and it's the fact that we were able to come together um, pull together a strategy that now allows everybody to come along for the journey. Um, a lot of times when people see these efforts publicly, they think it's just a single, you know, do-gooder community member that just wants to do a thing. But this project has proven to be a lot more. And it's because of all the things we had to dig through in order to get to this point. So, so much verification and there's so much you have to prove in order for the work to be done. And so when we started this um, and we had our initial presentation to city council to summarize the project, our objectives to uh, preserve and create a local historic district, we took the time to make first and initially black property owners aware of the work that was happening. And a lot of people will think that's, you know, dividing people and segmenting out certain parts of community. But if you look at the history of how communications happen you realize there are groups of people who are usually the last to receive anything. And so we bypass the digital communication and all the fancy <laughs> stuff you do today because there's still a really huge digital divide and digital equity is a thing that we still are having to look at as a country and better address. But in this case, we're looking at a community that the average age of the black property owner is over 65. They are older population. And that is a testament to how long they've been in this community. Um, Sharon, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're looking back at 18... 1865. 1860, I mean, as, yeah. 1865. So the history is longstanding. As, you know, as post-slavery. Uh -huh. Post-slavery, But yeah. they were here also before that. Exactly. And my take is that we were breathing, living beings, complete 100%. Mm -hmm. And so it's even difficult for me to say since 1865. Well, and, and our contributions have been there. And I think mm -hmm. uh, the point that I'm, I'm looking to raise is just how long this community has been in place. Yeah. Um, it's easy for people to just take a snapshot of their experiences in areas and think that that's a fact. But a lot of times it requires you to go a little further. So, again, hope beyond boundaries was us sitting in a room with these black property owners immediately after our first um, discussion with city council and addressing the desire to create the historic district and needing them to hear firsthand that this was something that would that we were actively working on and it will happen. Um, and a lot of times people don't come in rooms with that level of conviction, but I tend to stand pretty confident in my ability. And it's not a brag. It's just what I know to be true. And they needed to hear directly from uh, Sharon, who's leading Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage in their efforts, and then me as the practitioner and the person on the ground doing the work, that we now are calling on you, citizens, residents, 
homeowners in um, the Spouse Spring historic potential historic district. And we needed to let them vent and tell us what they thought, raise any concerns or questions. And what we realized is we were sitting in a room full of people who have never been given the opportunity to dream or even imagine or hope this large. Um, And they've been showing up consistently. So the title for the event really comes from our firsthand experience and time we've we've spent in this project so far and realizing we can't create hope beyond the existing boundaries or barriers. And, you know, I must say that uh, it's been many, many generations of attempts mm-hmm. to get here. The, pe- the black people in the community have put themselves out there and tried to make change. And somehow we have found that moment in time that it's perfect because we are not going to fail on this. Yeah. And can you talk about, you know, the mobilization of this specific effort when you're going to people, going to black property owners and saying, okay, we're going to work on this. We're going to, we're going to make this happen now. And we want your input. I mean, what was their response? Oh, that was fun. Yeah. And how was that process of, of getting getting to where you are today, where you're sitting right now. You know? uh, so this effort, it, it really didn't just start with me. I'm, I'm the organizer on the ground here, but um, it took a lot of um, pre-existing community efforts, existing community leadership, and us just knowing where to tap in. And the community, again, it was disbelief. It was a lot of you guys are just talking. This is another opportunity to get us excited. But And the first question I was met with was, why is this effort any different than anything else people have said to me? Because it's been taken. I mean, all the efforts that they have put in, they Uh put a lot of energy in, and they've become weathered. The people became weathered. Mm -hmm. We could hardly move to do anything more. And they had, uh, they were able to see that they won't have to do it alone, mm-hmm. and that we were coming out to everybody to say this is something that has to happen. And so they've, you know, there is always a little bit of apprehension, but let me just say that there is hope, mm-hmm. and that is not just, you know, uh, in the in the usual sense of the word, something that may never happen. It is not that anymore. Um, we had a full house last um, yeah last week during our city council again mm-hmm. black property owners showed up and they have now found a great deal of joy and I think um, reassurance in this process because they are a part of it a lot of that looked like getting past um, a lot of the stereotypes and concerns associated with the creation of a historic district you say historic district you think of these beautiful victorian and antebellum (laughs) homes that are being preserved and are pristine and we know that equates to a certain income level you have to be in a certain financial position to even maintain anything even as a property owner but we are making sure that their property is wholly theirs and a lot of times what happens when you say historic district you think about the increase in property values but now it becomes a really attractive place for developers and outside people to consider home because what historic districts do um, from the ground level up for the people that exist in those spaces and so we will be hosting a property owners clinic later on in the month, making sure property owners in that region understand 
to the full extent of the law, what this district means, what things they should can be should be considering in terms of their real estate. Um, we hadn't. I mean, we are we're pulling out all the stops. Yeah. And really, we have to because there's no point in doing this amount of work if you cause more harm than help. And you know, historically, our property values don't double necessarily mm. unless we're talking about gentrification. And we are trying to make sure that this is not the same outcome mm -hmm. that is <clears throat> routine. When you think about it large, it's, it's beyond actually the region. Well, I so. do want to talk about the region a little bit and about okay. the, the importance of this work, because I think there's always been this kind of ripple or like um, just a rumor or an idea that, oh, well, you know, black people didn't really exist in Northwest Arkansas Imagine. Yes, it's until true. recent. But that's just not true. <laughs> that's just not the that's case. so not yeah. Why is it important to do this work to say black people are here, they exist, you are here, yeah. and you have been? Yes. Uh, you know, I, it's a really, really intense effort. It's been a really intense effort. Uh, Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage has really worked hard to, uh, to say that. We started out with a woman who um, was from here. Mm -hmm. Out of this, the, the community in Washington County that's in the slave community, her uh, forefathers were, and mothers were out of enslavement right here in, in Washington County. The fact of the matter is we were everywhere around here. It's just a, an amazing thing to have heard that. It was shocking. But I think uh, so, too, um, probably also to this point, when when people are willing to say things out loud like there aren't any black people there, it, it goes back to our ability to even attract people into the region of color mm -hmm. is that there's these preconceived ideas that we lack diversity in the market. But the truth is, um, and I'm a testament to that, is I moved here in 20, into 2016. And moving here, it is the first question you ask. Where's the Where are the black communities and black neighborhoods? And there's a good reason why you do that. It's less of you not having the ability to move around and, and interact with other people from other backgrounds and other ethnicities. It's more about the things that you find familiar to you and how you work to build community in areas. Had I known there was a, a black community in Fayetteville, I probably would have been a property owner here before I was a property owner. And Rogers, because it's one thing to build communities of colors. And I think that's one of the things that we've kind of missed an opportunity to do here is really focus on our history well enough to be able to tell people out loud, no, there's a black community here. Yeah, that's what um, I looked for too when I and, came. To and, it, and it is a critical piece. You are looking for familiar places, faces, and things because if I have community, I can find a hairstylist faster. It's where you find the most comfort while you work to navigate new spaces. And so I think the message is that there are real things that we anticipate this historic district to do beyond just the preservation of black history. It should also work to attract and help retain and create that sense of community that a lot of people from various ethnic groups are looking for. And so the other big piece of this is education. And can you tell me a little bit about this event that's coming up on Thursday at Crystal Bridges? You know, what can people maybe look forward to 
to hearing about, to learning about if they have not engaged with the Black Heritage Association. Yeah, go ahead, Emma. This event is meant to educate and inspire. Um, there's a good reason why uh, we reached out to the high schools in Fayetteville to make sure students were present is to make sure they're part of the journey. And so we'll take the students through what will be um, about a one-hour tour early, top of the day. The education team at uh, Crystal Bridges will be helping to lead that. But we are interested and curious in how they think about the various themes and the various opportunities that they have here in the region because we are looking at their insight Mm -hmm. as helping to guide some of the work we do and some of the things we look to bring inside of this historic district. After we do that in the morning, we have an exercise that will be led by the marketing team at Crystal Bridges, and we will be talking about the name for this historic district. Right now, it's currently known as Spout Springs, but a lot of times people are just forced into things and names, like you just are given something. And for us, what is the greatest gift of this community is helping us name a place that has so much history so much importance to the people and and the places that are over here inside of Ward 1 and specifically the black community. And we're looking to bring the community in and have them engaged because guess what? That buy-in is invaluable to us. After that, Sharon is going to share uh, Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage's work to date, um, what their mission and what their work looks like on the ground. I think she has a special guest that's going to pop up during her discussion and share some of the work that has been done here um, in Northwest Arkansas to preserve as well as document that history. Um, From there, we'll have a lovely lunch and time for people to interact and network. And then what I'll do is close the day out with a topic on visioning. I'll be having a panel discussion with Ngozi Brown from the University of Mm -hmm. Arkansas, who is going to be instrumental in terms of how we talk about architecture and design and developing spaces and what it looks like to just imagine. A lot of people think that they can, they're visionaries, but I want to really highlight what it is to be a visionary within marginalized groups. And this is, it's part of the, of that um, minds coming together. And so I feel like we are doing really well for those people who didn't have a chance to do this before or for whatever reason it didn't happen. I feel great about the movement Mm -hmm. and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody on Thursday. You come out. That's a good form of support. We would love to see you there. Please come. Start at 1015. Get there in time for parking, but uh, we do know there's a really nice overflow lot, so we'll be excited to see the entire community show up. Sharon Killian and Emma Wilson with NWA Black Heritage speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth in the Karen Taha News Studio. This is Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of Black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. One misconception I've had to fight in discussing or teaching Black history is the myth of disorganization. The myth is frequently applied to Black social movements of history. 
And I constantly remind people that the Southern Freedom Movement, for example, was incredibly organized and detailed. The development of black civil rights organizations, churches, and even our sororities and fraternities were thoroughly and rigorously structured. One example I chronicle is the development of black history as an academic discipline. People just assume Dr. Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of black history, just thought one day he would put on an event and it just spread. I must frequently remind people it was way more intentional than that. There are a ton of librarians, teachers, ministers, businessmen, and parents who are working all over the country to support Dr. Woodson's organization, the ASALH, the Association for the Study of Negro, today African-American, Life and History. Dr. Woodson had what were called field organizers who would travel all over and sell black history kits. One of those men was Dr. Lorenzo Johnston Green. Dr. Green was born in Ansonia, Connecticut in November 1899. He would graduate from Howard University in 1924 and attend Columbia University, graduating in 1926. During the early part of the Great Depression, Green would act as a field representative for Dr. Woodson's ASALH from 1928 to 1933. In an article entitled Lorenzo Johnston Green's Book-Selling Odyssey, Touring Arkansas in 1930 by Arvar R. Strickland, Strickland highlights the processes of how Green would keep a diary and connect to communities, writing, The salesmen made their first contacts in the cities they visited with African-American professionals and business people. The text suggests that there was a necessity on the part of the community to embrace this discipline. Dr. Green would make incredible strides in the field as a professor at Lincoln University from 1933 to 1972. His participation or leadership of committees including the ASALH and the United States Commission on Civil Rights from 1959 to 1961 would solidify his journey in African-American history. He would also write the preeminent work highlighting a history of black Americans in Missouri titled Missouri's Black Heritage in collaboration with Antonio Holland and Gary Creamer. Sadly, Dr. Green would pass away in 1988, but would be a force in the development of black history as a discipline. In a time where black history is being actively removed from classrooms, let us continue to work together to build a space where history can be taught with love and justice. How will you contribute today? Perhaps it is donating to the Fayetteville Public Library or attending events in support of the work they have done for several years to provide resources on building a more equitable world. Perhaps it's learning about who serves on your school board and their commitment to keeping the histories of minoritized people in the classroom. Perhaps it is working with local black organizations to learn how important it is to use your time and your resources to continue to build learning spaces. It is very important that you start today. Until next time, peace.
Dallas Black Dance Theater is back in Fayetteville tomorrow. The ballet company first performed at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the UA campus last winter. Enriquez Daniels and Brian Hembry from the UA Multicultural Center came by the Carver Center for Public Radio yesterday to deliver a quick preview. Last year was like, I mean, magic that it happened yeah. because this I dreamed up this black ballet like <laughs> one night and I was like, okay, I want a black ballet for Black History Month. Got with Brian. I went online and found this amazing company. Reached out to them. We made it happen within what less than two months. Yeah, yeah. And we stayed in contact. So this time it wasn't as rushed, thank God. Yeah. But we got them here. We got them back, and we're very thankful that they're coming back to perform for all of us. Yeah, and they really enjoyed their time here. That was one thing. Mm-hmm. The community showed out in force. Campus community and community at large. It was a great big audience. Great yes. attendance. And then also we've learned through continuing to stay up with them that you know this is the beginning of their season. Mm-hmm. So they're almost looking at this as a chance. They come, they're testing new material. Mm-hmm. And so this is material that will play out over the coming 12 months. And so that's, that's an honor. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to see you know, a dance company doing their thing, but it's another thing to see process. Yeah. And they're sharing some of that process yeah. with us. And I think that's special, especially for a, a show on a campus. It's a treat to be their guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> so it will not be the same performance that we saw last year. Oh, no, year. different performance. And it's also a different company. I think they have different dancers, too. Yeah. Like, they cycle dancers now. So the the group that comes, their encore group, which is like a, a B group, I yeah. guess. We yeah. call it a B group. And so some of the people, they move up to the main company. So, like, they, they cycle out dancers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forgive me if I brought this up last year when we talked about no. this. But you and I both come from small towns. We do. Absolutely. I didn't get to see ballet. Until yeah, I was an adult. Yeah. That was my very first one last year, seeing any type of performance like that. So it's, it's good to bring them here and kind of be experienced in person. It's my first time as well seeing them last year. So my second ballet is coming up in a couple of days. <laughs> I'm excited. The most interesting thing to me is the things that these performers can do with their bodies. I mean, it's... It's unreal. It's unearthly. It's like, oh, my God, look at them. Like, And to be able to experience that in person and to watch them just be artists, it's, it's, it's magical. It's so good. It's so good. You know, I think the other thing that I would say about this is um, they're coming to campus for two days. Um, mm-hmm. The first day isn't public, but they're coming and rehearsing. They're really getting immersed in the space. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I love that they're investing their time in being here, um, which means they get to see the community, they get to see campus, they mm-hmm. get to really get a feel for what's happening on mm-hmm. campus. And it's busy on campus right now. You know, there's, there's there are other robust activities happening all across campus as a part of Black History Month. And I so think they're going to see, you know, um, the University of Arkansas in its full form and mm-hmm. in its true self, really expressing who we are. And I love that because as a performer, you, you go from town to town and you don't always get that. And I think that's something that... Uh, ends up playing out when they step foot on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yes, they're talented athletes. It's amazing what they're doing uh, as performers. But every night is informed by what happened that day, you mm-hmm. know, and, 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 you know, everything that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And I think they realize that. And so they're coming here for two days, and we get to host them and uh, show them who we are. Dallas Black Dance Theater at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the U of A campus tomorrow night at 6, doors at 5.30. The performance is free but you do need to reserve tickets at faulkner.uark.edu. Enriquez Daniels and Brian Hembry were in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio yesterday. The University of Wonder and Imagination is bringing its faculty to the Jones Center in Springdale Saturday. They'll bring works of magic, 
wonders of science, and marvels of math with them in what is a very interactive show. The entire faculty can fit into the Jones Center because they're all portrayed by just three actors who are part of Cahoots of Belfast. Earlier this month, I reached Gary Crossan, Katrina McFeely, and Declan King by Zoom during the first leg of their national tour. They were in Findlay, Ohio at the time. I asked Gary what the University of Wonder and Imagination offers. Everything and anything. I think that's the whole point of the University of Wonder and Imagination. It's uh, a place where uh, anything is possible and where all the great thinkers and dreamers, philosophers, artists, illusionists, uh, you know, of, of, of all the years that it's been established, uh, meet together and just have a good old think about things and how can we make the world a bit more wonderful, a bit more magical, a bit more exciting and a bit more fun. So, yeah, we're three professors within that university and uh, we uh, try and bring as much wonder and as much imagination to young people as we possibly can. It sounds like the time we'll spend at the University of Wonder and Imagination isn't necessarily the same as what will happen in Findlay, Ohio, as it will be in Springdale, Arkansas, as it was in Poughkeepsie. It can be different. Completely. There's a hundred university professors yeah, and we are just three of them that will be chosen on the day. So there's a potential for a hundred professors to, to be picked. And yeah. so three of those get chosen. And each audience is individual and that absolutely affects our show. Whoever's in the audience that day, they will have a say in what happens in the show in their own special way, not to give away any um, any spoilers. But no. Wonder and Imagination is individual, and so is our show, and our audiences make each show special. Because there's a lot of audience interaction. Uh, this show started off on Zoom during COVID a long time ago. And uh, one thing about that is you, we couldn't have people up on a stage with us. And so it was really important when we were creating this live version of the show that we made it as interactive. So there are lots of kids that get up on stage. I think you have about four or five. Mm -hmm. Declan has about four or five people up on stage. And it's and like Katrina said, that really does make each show really individual and really different. So if you came to see two shows, uh, neither would be the same. There's some magic. There's some math. There's some other things that are all part of this curriculum. Uh, there's math, there's magic, there's uh, space, time, the universe, and art, and all the all the wonderful things that art encompasses. That's your yeah. sort of field, isn't it, Declan? Yeah. So I mean, every every single department uh, uses wonder and imagination throughout them to explore different uh, aspects of human curiosity. So uh, space with Katrina, math with Gary, art with myself. But I mean, wonder and imagination and curiosity is the core to all of them, um, which ties them all together. But you explore deeply into each uh, unique topic um, with the audience for a certain amount of time. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's about taking subjects that kids might have already heard a little bit about and about turning those subjects like math, for example, not everyone's favorite subject. Let's just call a spade a spade. I'm not going to say, you know, but at the end of the day, it's about taking math and Showing how magical math can be and how exciting it can be, how magical numbers really actually are just in normally. You know, there's lots of magic different numbers. And then actually at the end of the show, if uh, the audience is, uh, you know, the audiences get a, a sneak preview into the, the library at the 
University of Wonder and Imagination where they can learn some of the secrets behind some of the stuff that we do on stage. So it's well worth staying to the end. (laughs) (laughs) So the Jones Center is a nice venue and it has some size. But when you start talking about all of these things that will be approached, how do you fit this all into a single venue? Well, actually, the set is quite, um, it's not uh, too complicated or too big, really. I mean, um, that's the kind of the beauty of the show. Um, there's nothing, I mean, part of Scout's signature style is magic, but it's it's all very contained in how it's done. Um, so they can't expect to see wonderful, amazing, magical things happen before their eyes, but it kind of com- it comes a lot from the performers as well. And we work as a team to make that happen. And the set just facilitates that. Um, so we can kind of take it to venues really small and venues very big. We're adjustable in that way, which is great. It means we can bring it to as many as many venues as possible, be they really large or be they quite small. Our set is like a xylophone that you just stretch out and you can just condense it back in again. Yeah, and we use a lot of digital technology. So the main centerpiece of our uh, our set is a big, huge sort of three meter by three meter uh, LED wall. And a lot of the content that we talk about on our show, imagine it as a huge digital blackboard uh, live on stage for the kids to be drawn into. And anything that we talk about can be represented on that screen. Any of the the tricks, the illusion, the magic that we do are supported by this screen. And then we have these wonderful, amazing LED lights that just light up the whole stage. And like Katrina and Declan were saying, they can kind of concertina out, you know, as far as they want. And that really creates a huge impact. Uh, whilst allowing us as a company to be able to put it in the back of a van and travel across as much of America as we possibly can and therefore interact with as many young people in America as we possibly can. We've started off in Florida. We're heading we head up to New York. We're coming through uh, Springdale, you know, and then we're heading down into, uh, into California. So we're trying to encompass the whole of America. So the, the set is the compactness and the, as Katrina was talking about there, is essential for that yeah. to happen, you know. Whoever put your itinerary together, they were right when they put you in Florida to start. Going to New York in January, I don't know about that, but. Central Park in the snow <laughs> is so beautiful. Uh, Broadway in the snow in your face is a little bit different, <laughs> but Central Park in the snow, man, that is top notch. It was cold, but it was really worth it because we we kind of have been in New York and New Jersey area for about two weeks. And so even just that small part of the country, getting to visit so many wonderful theaters and meet so many people within that small area was really, really nice. So yeah, we, we braved the cold, but it was worth it. <laughs> I, I hope, is it warm in Arkansas? Is it is it is it going to be toasty for us when Well, I'll tell you that we just went through a couple of weeks of sub-zero temperature, which is unusual for us. Today, as you as we're talking, it's sixty-two. Is that good? We we, oh yeah, right. Um, So let me do. I I do math. I can do the math. I can do the math. Sixty-two. That is roughly is that about ten degrees Celsius? A bit higher, I think. Yeah, so I'll stick to the math of magic. I'll stick to the math of magic all the <laughs> temperature. <laughs> Sixty-two is warmer than you would expect in early yeah. February. Um, yeah. People always tell me 20, 40, 60, 80. 80 is hot, 60 is mild, 40 is cold, 20 is freezing. Is okay. that is that about right? Yeah, that is exactly right. There we go. Um, <laughs> you know, and we're just it's it's us in Burma that do this. Everybody else has to catch up to how we do temperature. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. But um, we can't, I mean, like, like you say, going to New York and then within two or three weeks, we're in Arkansas. I mean, yeah. that's that's incredible for people from an island that you can drive up and down in about eight hours to the whole island of Ireland. You know, it's incredible for us to be able to be in New York and then three weeks later entertaining young people and, and seeing and see what they're like in Arkansas. It's going to be incredible. We can't wait to get there. Katrina, you mentioned braving the cold. Speaking of bravery, for you as performers, when you have a show that can go any one of 100 ways at any moment, and it has these digital and lighting techniques as well that I imagine can also change with the direction, and you're doing this live, that seems brave to me from a performance standpoint. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, and the magic can be absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um as I said, you know, Cahoot's signature style is, is this performance for young people that incorporates magic and illusion. Um, and when it goes right, it's incredible. But as you say, it can go wrong. But the beauty of it is we as a company know what to do to support the other performer if something like that does go wrong so that the audience don't know really. Or yeah. there's ways that we can, the show must and will go on. And there's so many wonderful things within the show that if one little element of it falls out, the show is not sacrificed. There's so many other great things that are coming up. There's so many other great things that have come before. But you do, you do have to be brave, and you have to be, you have to support the other performers as well. You have to always be switched on, um, giving the performance a hundred percent, so that you know if something doesn't do, go quite right, you can have the confidence in yourself that you can pick it up, keep going with the show, and hope that the audience are still getting the best show that they can get on that day. But there's al there's also something very freeing about knowing that you're not in total control of what's going to happen. So that before you walk on stage, you just say, breath in, <laughs> breath out. You know what? Let's just go with the flow of what this is. This isn't all in my power. And then you go out and you say, okay, look, I'm just going to have a conversation with this person who comes onto the stage with me. And we're just going to see what happens. And nine times out of 10, it works out. And it's it actually, for me, it actually takes a weight off my shoulder than having to have it perfect exactly the same every single time. Yeah. It's so interactive with the kids. It adds so much to it. You have to just be flexible and you have to be, they become, you know, the fourth member of the cast. You know, there's three of us in the cast and then there's four that the fourth member ends up being the audience. And yeah. you just, we do, we do randomly pick them. We just pick yeah. them randomly from the audience. So it can be anybody. But in terms of bravery, you know, they need to be brave and come up on the stage as well. And like we applaud all the people who come up on stage mm -hmm. and they're, they're all, they're always so keen. We have too many people to pick up, pick from. <laughs> but they are so brave when they come up. And I think so anyway, when they leave, you can see that they've left with a bit of magic and a bit of wonder. Gary Declan and Katrina from Cahoots of Belfast talked with me earlier this month from their stop in Findlay, Ohio. Their interactive national show tour stops at the Jones Center in Springdale Saturday afternoon at 2. It's part of the Jones Center day-long fam jam. You can find out much more at thejonescenter.net. Ozarks at Large is a production. 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Jacqueline Froelich, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and Raven Cook. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Thank you for spending part of your Valentine's Day with us. Absolutely. Uh, you've got some Valentine's Day plans this evening? Uh, yes, going to um, one of my favorite restaurants in Fayetteville, Cafe Rue Orleans with my wife. Yep. We've already exchanged some Valentine gifts this morning. I love it. I am uh, going to enjoy dinner with uh, my wife and my kid. First Valentine's Day with him. That'll Aww, be fun. That's sweet. I'm Kyle. I'm Matthew Moore. Support for KUAF comes from Atlas Obscura's Ecliptic Festival, a celebration of the 2024 eclipse at Valley of the Vapors in Hot Springs, April 5th through the 9th. 
This festival features music, science, art, and more. Information at ecliptic.atlasobscura.com.